Thank you, everyone. Good morning. It's a true pleasure to worship with you this morning. I bring warm greetings from my whole family, even though a lot of them are still asleep um, here in Orlando. But we really do miss Alton, and we can't wait until we can be back with you in person again and come on a visit. Um, we're right in the middle of a, a series looking at various themes in Ephesians, and I know we're dotting around the book a little bit. Um, and uh, in, this is really an awesome uh, letter that Paul has written. Let me share my screen. Um, it's a really amazing letter where he lays out a solid foundation for our faith. And if you're familiar with this book, the first three chapters, uh, Paul is telling us about who we are in Christ. And then the last three chapters, uh, Paul is telling us about how we're meant to live what we're meant to do. So right here in chapter three, we're right at the, coming towards the end of the section where Paul is talking about who we are in Christ. And Paul is reaching his main point. He describes this as the mystery finally revealed, the ultimate purpose of the church. And it's, it's a bold claim, but I don't think that Paul is overselling it. But before we get to this mystery, uh, I'd like us to, I'd like to maybe just tee this up a little bit. What is your favorite sports team? If you have a team that you support or you root for, maybe a football team or maybe it's a, a tennis star or someone that you root for, go ahead and type it in the chat. Go ahead and be bold. There's no shame here. We'll, uh, we'll try not to disseminate into an argument about which is the best sport team. No promises, but we'll do our best. Go ahead and type in the chat right now. Um, while you're doing that, since we um, since we moved to uh, Orlando, we've been trying to get into uh, into American sports, um, and so we started to follow the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who are our local American football team. And they actually won the Super Bowl last year, so we picked a good team, I guess maybe. Um, but Americans take their sports very seriously, and they take the high school sports very uh, seriously. So. Our daughter, Sabrina, has just joined Color Guard. And I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of this before, but Color Guard is part of a 300-person a, a cheer section that our high school has, including a 150-person um, brass band um, and all sorts of dancers and cheerleaders. And it's quite an amazing thing. So if you'll indulge me for a very short proud dad moment, I'm going to play a very short video clip of our uh, our daughter's color guard in action, so you can get an idea of what this is about. Now that's actually just a tiny fraction of the overall um, uh, team that, that that are there that are cheering, and it's quite an amazing sight. And I know in COVID times this looks crazy; it probably is a little crazy. Um, but it's quite quite an amazing thing. Now, our football team are actually not very good. They just won their first game. Um, but nonetheless, it's quite an amazing experience. And I suspect that most of the five or 6,000-person crowd are there because they're friends and families of the cheering section rather than the football team. But nonetheless, to be part of this thing, the noise, the drums, it's deafening, but it's quite awe-inspiring to see all of this. And everyone is intently looking of what is playing out on the field, and, and the experience is quite something. There's something about being 
part of a huge crowd um, that is quite. Um, Sorry, you skipping ahead. There you go. Um, there's something about being part of a huge crowd, rooting for your team. Maybe it's your country at the Olympics, or maybe it's just your favorite football team, or something like that that sets us alive. We love to cheer the underdog. We love to see them prevail. We love to be something bigger than ourselves. Amazing how the story of Emma Raducanu captivated the world's attention as she became the youngest Grand Slam tennis champion a few weeks ago. But if you are part of a family of God, if you were a child of God, if you were a son or a daughter of the king, then the primary team that you serve on, it isn't your kid's football team. It's not your favorite soccer team. It's not your country at the Olympics. The primary team you were a part of is the church. It's the kingdom of God. This team, this is more amazing than any miracle team that you have seen win the champions team more than the 1966 England World Cup football team. This team, God's team, is truly a miracle team. For men and women who were once dead to life from every tribe, tongue, and nation are now being assembled together as the body of Christ, being part of the same family, whether Jew or Gentile. This team is nothing short of a miracle team. And I think we live in a world right now where... Often we try to, um, sorry, thank you, just a second, a little bit of a problem. One second. There you go, sorry about that. <laughs> um, we live in a world right now where often we try to represent the wrong team. Often because we're not really aware that this is the team we're meant to be representing. Some of us, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, have focused a little too much on our political team in this last season. Some may be our occupational team. Some of us may be even our sports team. But the church, this primary team, should get the majority of our time and attention. That's right, the church. So as we get into our passage this morning, there is truly a cosmic game that is unfolding. Pretend for a moment that the world is a playing field. And there are two teams. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. The objective is for both sides to advance their kingdom. On one side, we have the adopted, the redeemed in Christ, the body of Christ, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's, that's team one. And on the other side, we have the, um, those that are still in darkness, ruled by the God of this world. According to Ephesians 2, they are dead, doomed, and disobedient, and they don't even know it. The outcome of this game has already taken place. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he already has the victory. But we're still called to play out what is happening. The spectators of this game, well, when you go to a football game at Wembley Stadium, there can be a 90,000-person spectator crowd in the stands, at least before COVID, cheering for just 22 people on the field. Here in this game, we are not the spectators. The spectators of this game, as we're going to read in our passage a little bit later, are the heavenly hosts. They are the angels and the demons. So the question I have for you this morning, before we get into the heart of our passage, is are you on the field and are you playing in this game? Are you actively engaged on this team? 
This is not just, are you attending on a Sunday morning and sitting in a seat, or are you following on the That doesn't necessarily mean that you are actively engaged in a team, because you can be a fan, or you can be a follower. And if you're a fan, you'll sit in a congregation, or you'll sit in the stadium, and you will cheer everyone else thinking that they are supposed to do it. But if you're a follower, you get in the game, and you participate. So I want to ask us the question, are you engaged? in this team because there is only one cause of world today that will still matter a million years from today only one and it's the cause of christ i believe that the role of the church is to equip and empower the body of christ to even impact every sphere of life with gospel sense of love and in order to see that take place it takes every one of us every single one of us now, as I was preparing this message, I was reminded of a movie, uh, and the movie's called Dunkirk. Chantal and I just watched this a couple of weeks ago. And if you know this movie, or you're aware of these events during the Second World War, it's quite an amazing picture. Things are not going well. Hitler has pushed us back all the way to the English Channel, and our troops are stuck right on the beach in, in uh, uh, right on the beach in northern France. And they're not able to escape the enemy forces. It looked like they were going to be eventually killed and destroyed. The Navy was simply not able to rescue these people. There were 350,000 troops stuck down on the beach. And it was far too many people for the Navy to be able to pull off the beach in enough time to be able to rescue them so that they would not be overrun. And if Hitler got to this beach and destroyed our army, then Great Britain would be next. This was an essential and pivotal part of the Second World War. At this moment, the Navy couldn't do what needed to be done. It looked like all was lost. But if you've ever watched the movie or you're familiar uh, with these events that happened in 1940, something quite miraculous happened. Out of the mist, out of nowhere, small boats suddenly appeared. These were tugboats and sailboats and small boats that barely had motors to them. Some didn't have motors at all. But over the next few days, 850 average ordinary boats rescued 350,000 troops from impending war. Ordinary people doing an extraordinary feat, one boat, one person at a time. And that's what's needed in our world today. We need men and women of God with their tugboats and their rowboats and their sailboats and whatever boat they have, whether they can fit one person or two, to jump into the sea of this world and rescue, to be part of what God is doing in the world today. And the only way we're going to do this is not to let our church staff do this or full-time missionaries or to let the church around the corner take it. The only way we can do this is for you, us, we, to take whatever we have and leverage for the sake of the gospel. And you may say, I can only fit two people in the boat. Well, then it's fit two people in the boat. You may say, John, you don't understand. I don't, I don't have much to give. It doesn't matter how much we give. It matters what we do. And this is exactly what Paul is going to speak about this morning in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given from me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. I want to point out a few things that we can learn and understand about Paul and about our own lives from these first eight verses of chapter three. The first thing is that God uses unlikely people in unlikely places. And Paul was certainly an unlikely person. He was the persecutor of the church. When he was still Saul, he was an insolent opponent against the gospel. Yet God calls him, redeems him, restores him, and names him Paul. Now, all of a sudden, he's an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And Paul understood that he was an unlikely person. He says himself, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's quite literally saying this call, this mission, he is, he is enslaved to. But do you realize that at this moment in time, he's quite literally a prisoner? He is in prison. I don't know about you, but if I'm in prison like that, I'm saying, there's, there's nothing I can do. There's no, I have no voice. There's no way. Paul's in prison and he's like, I'm going to write the prison episodes. Like he's, he, he's amazing the way he's seizing every opportunity as a platform to advance the gospel. Every position, every opportunity, every time of opposition, Paul looks at as a situation for, for gospel operation. Right now, I want us to think about the last 18 months um, in this COVID season. How many times have we said, I'll do this once things go back to normal? Or I'll do this once my job is settled. Or once my kids are at the next stage. Because right now, the opposition is too great. Or the resources are too limited. Or my understanding is not full or robust enough. But what Paul does is he looks at the situation we're in, as we're going to see in a moment. He understands God's sovereignty in the situation. And understands that God has allowed this situation in order for the advance of the gospel. So Paul's situation, whether shipwrecked on an island, in prison, or on a beach somewhere relaxing with lots of abundance of everything, every situation, every season, every opposition, and every opportunity he looked at as a way to advance the gospel, everyone. So as you look back over the past season, have you looked at your own situation as a platform to leverage and preach the gospel? I've been really convicted by this as I've prepared for this study because I think about my next door neighbors. What an amazing opportunity over the past year to even say hi to them because they've been home so much more. Now may not be the right time to go up and give them a big hug, but there are all kinds of opportunities in this season of opposition that we've never had before. We've seen online church open a Christian community to a whole group of new people who would never set foot in a physical church. But what we often do is we try to get out of the season we're in so that all of a sudden we can do something. Instead of embracing the season that we're in, knowing that God is sovereign and that what he wants us to do is to be able to engage right here in this season. So why do we view our situation often as some opposition rather than some opportunity. Maybe it's fear. Maybe we're waiting for some better timing or better position. Or we think that our current season is just something we need to get through 
But Paul understood that whatever the situation he was in, it was an opportunity to advance the gospel. The next thing we learn about Paul is that the gospel never ceased to amaze Paul. Paul was just simply amazed by the gospel. The very first thing he was amazed by goes back to chapter 2. That when we were dead, doomed, and disobedient, God is rich in mercy. And this just confounded Paul. Like, he was literally on the road to persecute Christians, and God intercepted him on that road. When he was dead, doomed, and disobedient, he was made alive unto Christ. And that just blew Paul's mind. Like, how in the world, why in the world did these things take place? But not only that, the mystery that we read about here, no one expected that the Gentiles would be at the same level as the Jews. Did not expect it at the same level. Gentiles are now given exactly the same opportunity as, Jew, as the Jew. Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, it doesn't matter where you are from, all are invited into a relationship with Christ. He is taking people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and making them into a family, a part of his son's body, with Christ as the hand. This is the beauty of what God is doing. And this mystery was left unknown for centuries, because the Jews thought, those Gentile dogs, really? Like, really? You're going to invite them and give them everything we have as well? No, that's never going to happen. And Paul is saying that wasn't his expectation, not what he thought was going to happen. But it is the reality of what is taking place. This mystery, this new kingdom, is being formed of all peoples. And that was literally amazing to Paul. And not only that, what was totally amazing to Paul was the gospel's implication on his own personal life. He says this in verse 8, that he is the least of all the saints. Paul always thought of himself as the chief of sinners, the least of these. The, the gospel amazed Paul because he knew who he was before Jesus. And he knew what Jesus did in him. And he was constantly amazed by God's grace and mercy in his life. And I want to ask you, are you amazed by God's grace and mercy in your life? I think sometimes we can think of ourselves as better than we are. Now, I know we live in a world where there's a ton of insecurity, and we don't really have a good understanding of ourselves. Often we can get depressed and think of ourselves as less than we are. How do I say this? I don't think that most of us have a problem thinking of ourselves as, as, as better than we are. Um, I think most of us have a problem looking at ourselves the way we really are. And I understand that we need to look at ourselves with confidence and all of the self-actualizing things that the world tries to say. I get, I get that. I really do. But you know why we don't forget? It's because we think of ourselves as better than we are. You know why we don't show mercy? Because we think of ourselves as better than we are. You know why there's certain political battles that we get embroiled in or certain interactions on social media? Because we think of ourselves as better than we are. Well, I don't think of myself as better than I am. I just think of others as worse than me. It's the same thing. You know how Paul was able to show such grace and mercy? 
You know why Paul was a slave to the gospel? Because he looked at himself as the chief of sinners, and he was constantly amazed that God would redeem him. He wasn't more amazed at anyone else's conversion than his own. And that amazement led him to leverage everything he was and everything he would ever be for the sake of the gospel. Not only that, he understood God's sovereignty and his own purpose. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's purpose, he knew, was to be a minister of the gospel. He knew that whatever situation he found himself in, he trusted God's sovereignty. That's how he could leverage every situation for the sake of the gospel. He knew, I am here because God allowed me to be here. Therefore, he has a reason for me to be here. The problem can be that the body of Christ looks at the paid staff of the church or the full-time missionaries and workers and ministers of the gospel, as the ministers of the gospel. But the truth is that every single person who is a Christ follower is a minister of the gospel. You can be a minister of the gospel as a teacher. You can be a minister of the gospel as an engineer or as a sales clerk or a firefighter. But your primary purpose is not about what you do occupationally. Your primary mission is to be a minister of the gospel. And Paul understood that and he was committed to that. The author Paul Tripp said, there is woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than our relatively meaningless day-to-day, day-by-day existence. Paul understood that he was part of something bigger. In fact, that's exactly why he gave him the name Paul. Paul literally means small. And I know we have a new Paul, have a few Pauls on the call today, and I'm sorry, you probably didn't want this to get out. But the, 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 the word Paul literally means small. Before he was big old Saul, but now he is Paul. He is small. He is insignificant. I might decrease, that he might increase. Paul points out here that we get to be part of something bigger, actually something huge. The church, the family that God has built, <laughs> is amazing. Look at me in, look with me at verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heaven. The very existence of the church has a much higher purpose than we often realize. It's an amazing thing that once spiritually dead people are now raised in new life, that former enemies become a family together within the church. This is such a big deal that it is in this way that God has chosen to reveal his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly world. Think for a moment about all the ways that God could have shown the the spiritual authorities his wisdom. We sang earlier about the the work of his hands and the hundred million galaxies and all of the amazing things that show who God is. But it is in this way, it's through the church 
that he has chosen to show angels and demons his might, his wisdom. The heavenly hosts look down on what is taking place in the world. And right now, you and I, the history of the, the Christian church is just a graduate school for angels. It's a place to teach angels God's wisdom. Demons once thought that Jesus was killed once and for all. All of his followers were scattered. But then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Well, you can't expect much from a group of followers who would never amount to much. But then Peter, right, loudmouth Peter, steps up to preach, and thousands join the church. Satan and his demons threw everything they had at the church, but it continued to spread throughout the Roman Empire, so that this obscure marginal movement became the dominant religious force in the Western Hemisphere for centuries. John Stott wrote on this passage, It is as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theatre, the world is the stage, and church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We are to think of them as spectators of the drama of salvation. Thus, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. The very existence of the church is a sign to demons that their days are numbered and their final defeat is imminent. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Because of all of this, we have access to God, which is unhindered by hostile powers. And this church, the church, you and I, God builds it, and we are part of his eternal purpose. And it matters, and it will matter for eternity. Nothing else will matter for eternity. And I'm not saying that we don't go to work and do whatever we're doing to put food on the table to provide for our family. We absolutely need to do that. But going to work is not the final destination. It's knowing that we are there for a reason, a reason that's bigger than producing whatever we're producing. God has put people around us for a reason. We live where we do for a reason. We are in the community we are in for a reason, and it's much bigger and broader than some temporal thing. He has redeemed us and saved us to be his ambassadors where he has called us. And all of the heavens watch to see how it plays out. Many of us can live with little or no awareness of what of this, this, this battle that's going on around us. But it's time to open our eyes, to get on your boat, jump in the game, be a part of it. Here at Alton Baptist, or more importantly, everywhere God has placed you. 350,000 people were saved by 850 boats. We have a world lost and dying and going to hell. All of us have been saved for only one purpose, to make his name known amongst the nation and bring glory to him. So let's do what we are called to do. Let me pray. Lord, as we um, read these words from Paul, they can appear quite daunting. Um, Paul sets a very high 
standard and we are baffled sometimes at how and why you might have redeemed us in the first place and why you would choose us, the church, to be the, the, the means by which you are going to reveal your wisdom to the heavenly places. But Lord, I think of the people in Alton right now who are um, dead doomed and disobedient, the people who have no hope, the people who over this last season uh, have found depression and have found isolation and loneliness, that they found loss and uh, they found pain. And I just pray this week as we go about our weeks that we might be ministers of your gospel, bringing good news to a, a community and to people who desperately need it. One by one, in whatever simple way, give us an opportunity to bring hope to a world that needs it. In your name we pray. Amen.